You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This evening's reading comes from John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You can remain standing as I pray for us. Now, Father, pray that you would have your own way with us, your people. Some of us are indeed wounded and weary, but we are here, assembled together under your word. So we now pray that you would do a great work in us and through us, for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. So it was really good these last two weeks. I was in Texas and in Florida. Vacationing, seeing my family and Marcy's family in Florida, but it's really great to be back in Albuquerque. We had one day of good weather in Florida before like the low 50s winter apocalypse hit Florida. But that one day of good weather, we spent at Legoland, which was a makeup trip. We tried to go to Legoland last year, but somebody like an hour into the park opening found a bomb threat written on a piece of paper. And so a year ago, they evacuated the entire park after one hour, and we're talking like gallons and gallons and gallons of tears of thousands of children <laughs> evacuating the park at the same moment. But we, we made up for it this year. I was really glad to hear Michael Kelshaw's sermon that he preached last week, yesterday, somewhere in the middle of West Texas as we were driving back to town. Uh, I was really challenged and encouraged by what he brought to us through Psalm 90. And what he said last week is true, that he has been praying for us for a very, very long time. Michael and I had lunch in March of 2013, where I told him that I was beginning to think about uh, that God was, I think, leading us to plant a church here in Albuquerque, and he has been praying for us since then, nearly four years ago. After four great weeks of Advent, After a week off last week, I'm really, really excited to now get back to the Gospel of John. Like Clint said, uh, I'm Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. We now have four pastors among us, two here on staff, and then two uh, just lay guys in the church. But we're 
glad that you're with us. We'd love to meet you afterwards. Just to catch us up to speed where we left off in the Gospel of John, uh, we saw a world of darkness, a world of opposition, a world, a kingdom of darkness, which was opposed to the kingdom of light. But God was not content to let the world stay in its darkness, not content to stay uh, in its condemnation. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the the creative word of the universe, he became man and dwelled among us. He tabernacled among us. He became the very thing which the tabernacle and the temple were preparing for and to be fulfilled in. He became the place of sacrifice, the place of forgiveness of sins. He became the place where God lives with humanity. And he comes, Jesus, he comes seeing in and through the people whom he has created. He, he came to cleanse people from the inside. He came to fulfill and satisfy our deepest longings and desires. And he came to be living water and to be our God. We saw all this just in the first really three and a half chapters of the Gospel of John. And this is something that we need to hear over and over and over and over again. Just the truths that we saw in just these first three chapters be confronted with every day of our lives. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we really like the idea of Jesus, don't we? We're comfortable with him. We get, but we have comfortable lives too. So if we think Jesus can be added on to our already decent life and make it a bit better, then we're game for that. Kind of for the same reason that we like exercise. We like good books. We like video games, perhaps. We've got little room in the margins of our lives to add something to it. So if going to the gym can make me feel better, give me more energy, perhaps even extend my life, then I'm up for that. I'll add that. I'll fit it into the margins of my life. If, if reading more books can make me sound a little bit more smart at a dinner party or something, then I'll commit to reading more books this year. If coming to church and liking Jesus is what I'm supposed to do, if it's what my tradition has brought me up to do, if it gives me a bit more meaning in my life, and if, for sure, if it gets me to heaven, then sign me up. I'm for that. So what do I have to do? What do I have to do to fit this Jesus thing in? Maybe go to church two or three or 40 or 45 or 50 times this year. What are those Christchurch guys always pressuring me towards, like membership or like getting involved in a GC or something? I guess if that's what I have to do, then I guess I can fit that in. But as long as, hopefully, I get to keep the life I already have in its comfortability. But what we've been confronted with in these first three and a half chapters is what if Jesus is more than just a hobby? What if he's more than just something that we can perhaps fit into the available margins of our life? What if he is the one that's created you? What if he is the most beautiful and captivating thing in the entirety of the universe? Which is true, isn't it? but yet we are daily bored. We daily lose sight that he is the most beautiful and captivating thing in the universe. We get bored by him and we just kind of shove him out to the suburbs of our hearts. And if that's true, this is why we are in daily and minute by minute need of his grace. That's why we need each other in our GCs. That's why we need to commit to being together each Sunday. This is why this time together is so important in our lives. Because I realize that I am just one minute away from trusting myself. I realize that I'm just one minute away from loving myself more than Christ. I'm one minute away from doubting God's promises. And I can only backslide so far in six days. 
So I need to meet with all of you together under God's word to be confronted and captivated by Christ. So tonight, Jesus is going to confront us in the text that you heard Nana read from us for us in John 4. We're going to consider who we are by putting ourselves right alongside this man from Capernaum and the rest of the Galileans. And then we'll consider Jesus who heals. We're going to ask two questions tonight. Who are we? And then who is Jesus? So first of all, who are we? Well, while Jesus certainly lives a life for us to follow and emulate, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might walk in his steps. There's certainly a sense in which asking what would Jesus do in this particular scenario in our life is a helpful thing to do, but it's often more easier, it's often easier to see ourselves in the characters surrounding Jesus rather than just Jesus himself. These other characters, they're weak, they're fragile, they're fear, fearful like us, and sometimes these characters are in fact to be emulated. We saw the Samaritan woman at the well, the first half of chapter four. She responds in faith to Christ, and then in like joyful evangelism, she goes to her city and she tells all of the people about what Jesus has done, and despite their previous and likely dismissal of this woman as like a, a social outcast, they believe her. They take Jesus at her, at her first word and then at his word that he is indeed the savior of the world. These are commendable models for us in chapter 4. Others are not so commendable. They're, they're negative examples for to, to be avoided. Those that Jesus clears out of the temple in chapter 2 with what we're given in chapter 3, Nicodemus doesn't seem to get it. He understands a lot about God, but he doesn't seem to get who Jesus is. He knows the scripture, but he doesn't understand. Depending on the chapter, the disciples will continually act and just uh, respond in a lack of faith. So here's a question for us. Is this man, at the end of chapter 4, a model for us to emulate? Or is he perhaps a negative model to avoid? Let's look. While your English subtitles likely start this section at verse 46, we're going to start at verse 43 because I think this little paragraph will begin to help us in answering our question. Verse 43 of John chapter 4. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Okay, so why does John include the bit in verse 44 that a prophet has no honor in his hometown? It's kind of confusing. He's just left Samaria, and then he departs for Galilee. Galilee, the region that includes his hometown of Nazareth. So he departs for his hometown where a prophet does not have any honor. And then, so, or therefore, then the Galileans welcomed him, seemingly not dishonoring him. On the surface, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, there are a couple of options to explain what's going on here. I think the most likely explanation is that Jesus has just left Samaria, the place of the outsiders, who declared that Jesus was the savior of the world based merely on his word. But that's just a tiny Samaritan interlude. Before this interlude, he's been in Galilee, he's been in Judea, where the, the Jews live, and they're having real problems believing Jesus, even though Jesus is doing incredible signs. So now, after this Samaritan meet in the sandwich, he's coming back to the place of his homeland. And the Galileans, I think, welcome him. 
which is just like dripping with irony. Because why did they welcome him? Well, verse 45, because they saw all the stuff that he had done in Jerusalem. And then in verse 46, he's back in Cana, the place where he had previously made water into wine. They, they really liked this kind of Jesus. They welcomed him. Rather than the true belief of the Samaritans, Jesus' countrymen just welcome him because of the signs. They're there for the party tricks. And we'll spend some time on the man with the sick son, but after asking Jesus to heal his son, Jesus replies in verse 48, unless you, and this is a plural you, Jews of Galilee, unless all of y'all see the signs and these wonders, y'all will not believe. Unless I keep the party tricks coming, y'all won't love me. You, You won't worship me. You won't trust me. Which fits into exactly what John told us he'd tell us in chapter 1, verse 11. That Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus intentionally leaves Samaria. The place where people rightly recognized him. Rightly worshipped him. Things were going well there. You and I would have totally stayed. He's a celebrity. There's attention, recognition, and ease for all the right reasons. But because a prophet does not have honor in his hometown, he leaves all that. What? Why would he do that? Because the cross doesn't await him in Samaria. His mission isn't to keep getting attention, recognition, or ease. His mission is to come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. He has to keep moving. His mission is his death. And he walks headlong into the dishonor of his homeland so he can get there. So in John's gospel, a prophet not having honor in his hometown is gravitationally drawing Jesus to his homeland for a spell, but then on to the cross, the place of his death, the place where he can come to make sinners right with God. Now when he gets to Cana, he meets an official whose son was ill. This is a royal official likely an advisor to a guy named Herod Antipas, which is the son of Herod the Great, the Herod that we, that we meet in the birth narratives. His son Antipas is now a ruler over Galilee. So this guy's no scrub. He's an advisor to basically the king. When he wants things done, it happens. And commendably, this guy makes the 18-mile walk up from, up from Capernaum to Cana to Jesus himself. He doesn't send a servant He comes himself. He needs to see Jesus. And and just put yourself in his shoes. If your child was in his final hours, maybe a fever that hasn't left and now it's getting drastically worse. Maybe your son has now gone unconscious. This is the first century, so there's no penicillin or modern medicine to give you any hope that he's going to pull out of this. You've seen this many, many times in your village perhaps with your friend's children, perhaps a child of yourself, perhaps even likely a child of your own has died. And you're desperate. But good news, the guy guy who turned hundreds of gallons of water into wine, the magician, the wizard, he's returned. You had friends that were at this party, and they said it was like the best wine that they'd ever tasted. So maybe, maybe if he, could, if he could do that at the wedding, maybe he could also now do something for your dying son. So unwilling to perhaps miss him while he's still in Cana, you ride your horse or you run as fast as you can for 18 miles to perhaps meet him there, that he could do something. And you get to Cana and you ask around, where, where is he, where is he? 
Then you see a crowd following this plain-looking teacher walking down the dirty roads. You think, that's got to be him. And you run up to this crowd, interrupt all of the dialogue, other questions that others were asking him, and you say, Jesus, my son is dying. Will you come down to Capernaum? And then in what seems to be perhaps the harshest and unfeeling response imaginable, Jesus just looks right past you, looks out to the crowds, and says, unless y'all won't believe, unless y'all don't have the signs and wonders keep coming, you aren't going to believe in me. You're here for the tricks. Seems pretty harsh, right? And then the guy just says, well, that may be true. I might be here for that reason, but I don't really have time for belief or unbelief. All I need is a miracle. So verse 49, he just says, sir, come down to Capernaum now before my son dies. Now, admittedly, I've read a little bit of speculation into this guy, but Jesus doesn't read any speculation. We've seen him over and over again in the first four chapters of John, just see right through people. He knows their past. He knows their present. He knows their future. He knows their hopes and desires. He knows their fears, their anxieties, their hurts, their disappointments. And so when this guy shows up asking for the healing of his son, Jesus, who, who time and time again responds to similar requests like these with compassion and even commendation for the person's faith that that person would ask him to do something, Jesus responds here incredulously, like with essentially like, you got to be kidding me. You don't know me. You don't love me. You don't worship me. You don't have one ounce of care about who I am. All you want from me is to underwrite this happy life that you thought that you're owed. And aren't we the same? Just content to ignore Jesus? Content to ignore the claims that he's made about himself? Content to ignore the claims that he's made about our own lives? Content to just shove him over to the margins of our lives? As long as there's just a little bit of room, maybe we can perhaps fit him in on Sunday nights, perhaps fit him in for an hour and a half or so each week at GC. But otherwise, just ignoring him in the day-to-day of our lives. Hardly, if, if ever, praying to him. Hardly, if ever, seeking to know him more personally through his word. Hardly caring about him at all. But then, then when a big need comes in, we need Jesus. We need these extra dollars to pay the bills this month. And we need an A on this upcoming exam or we just have to nail this presentation at work. When we think we need a, a husband or a wife or even the dire, dire health needs of our children, of our family or friends. For perhaps many of you and in your own lives, in the past or even presently, the, the dire needs of your children. We come to him. In essence, we come to Jesus when we think Jesus will be useful. In the times that we can't do it on our own. And because in nearly every other aspect of our lives, we can do it on our own, we're actually able to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish, we're free to just go on ignoring him. So even in as much pain and fear and desperation as this man's in, this, this man comes to Jesus because he thinks he'll be useful. And even for a good thing, right? The life of his son. But he doesn't come to Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah. 
So if this is who we are, if we're quick to make ourselves the gravitational center of our own universe, we're quick to push Jesus out to the margins of our life if there's room, and we're quick to come to him only in times of need, if that's who we are, but if Jesus is not just some conjurer of cheap tricks, then who is he? Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the eternal God of the universe. He's the creative word of the universe. He's the light come from heaven into the darkness. He was not content to let humanity continue on in their rebellion and condemnation. He is love. He's the hope of Israel. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He is the Lamb of God, the place of sacrifice of sins, the way that God dwells with sinners. He is the peace of God. He's not a consultant. He's not a life coach. He's not a vending machine or a genie. He's the beginning and the end. He's the sun and the morning star of David. He's the one to crush the snake. He's the one to finally and fully do away with sin and sickness, death forever. He's your creator and king, whether you recognize him or not. He's come to forgive you of your sins. He's come to transform your relationships with God and with others. He's come to make you a better steward of his gifts. He's come to give you joy and meaning. He's come to disarm the powers of the evil one. He's come to give you a new heart and the power to finally obey God in righteousness. He's come to restore creation to its perfection in love and in worship and communion with God. He is all of that. And this is what he's come to do. This is incredible. This is who Jesus is. So back to the text While it looks like Jesus was cold, while it looks like he's without compassion, and even though this man from Capernaum comes to Jesus for no other reason than the health of his son, Jesus still responds with what we sang about him earlier. He still responds full of pity, full of grace, and full of power. So verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live like that. It's done. He heals him, and he heals him out of compassion out of compassion for this sick boy and out of compassion for this broken-hearted father. Now, a couple of quick things to say about Jesus' healing ministry with more to come in chapter 5 with more healing. But first, this story, along with many, many, many others in the gospel accounts, should absolutely wreck the myth that if only you have enough faith, God will heal you, will get you out of the circumstances that you're in. And the flip side of that is that if you continue in sickness or some other trial, then it must be because you don't have enough faith. Jesus just healed the son of a man who thought no more of Jesus than that he was a party magician. And in Mark 9, another father comes to Jesus with a son who is demon-possessed. And this, this father tells Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. He's waffling between faith and doubt belief and unbelief. And then Jesus responds, not in equal measure to the man's faith, but in overwhelming measure to both of these men's faith. Just blowing it out of the water. Which is the second thing that we can say about Jesus's works of healing and miracles. While they're done, yes, out of mercy, out of compassion, and certainly out of power, they're always an announcement of the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of Messiah. The prophets looked forward to a time when the Savior would come, when he would come to forgive sins, but then along with that, when he would come to make the mute speak, to make the deaf hear, to make the the lame walk, to make the dead live. 
all of that would come alongside the forgiveness of sins. That God would begin the huge work of undoing the curse of death that began in Genesis 3. So when Jesus goes around healing, it's, it's like he's bringing little pockets of the kingdom of heaven and just plopping them here on the kingdom of earth. He's like little spheres of the kingdom of light. That he's just radiating here and amongst the kingdom of darkness. When he heals, he is, he is pronouncing about himself. I am the Messiah, the undoing of the curse. He's walking around as Sam Gamgee says, just making all the sad things come untrue. All of them. But not all at the same time. So when this man's son is made well, it's like we're skipping to the end of the story. And we're like getting out our scissors and we're cutting out a little bit of the end of the story and then we're taking that and then we're gluing it right here in the middle. Just a glimpse of eternity to come. A glimpse not only of the healing of our physical bodies but of the healing of our souls. So what should we say today? Should we pray for healing today? Yep. God can certainly heal today just as easily as he did in the time of Jesus and the apostles. Should we expect him to? And if he doesn't, then it must be because of our lack of faith? Not necessarily. God chose not to remove Paul's thorn, whatever that was. And we have example after example in both the New Testament as well as Christian history of men and women who were great in faith, whom God never healed of their physical ailments. And in fact, one reason why their faith was so strong is not in spite of their physical ailments, but because of them. Because he left them in their pain, in their sickness. This is why their faith grew. And this gets us back to the idea of coming to Jesus only when we think he's useful. When, when things are just peachy in our lives. When we have full bellies, when we have warm houses, healthy bodies, we have income for entertainment and then some. We think that we don't need God's help. We don't have a need for Jesus, but it's just an illusion. We don't have control over anything in our lives. When I, was, when I was in my second year of seminary, I was considering going on this 10-day trip to Nepal. We were going to do three pastoral trainings in this country where most of these pastors have no hope for a seminary education. Uh, the only problem was, was that my wife, Marcy, uh, she was, we, we had had Owen like six months earlier. So first, first time mom, first six-month-old baby, and I'm thinking, now I'm about to head up and fly to the opposite side of the globe. So I kind of expressed my concerns uh, to my New Testament professor who's going to lead this trip. I was like, I'm really concerned about leaving them all alone, uh, not being able to, you know, take care of them. And he was like, so like, right now when we're on the seminary campus, which is like a seven-minute drive from your neighborhood, are you saying that you could keep them from getting into a car wreck seven minutes from here any better than you could on the other side of the globe? And I was like, well, no. And he was like, you don't have control over anything. Basically, it's just an illusion. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He has control. You don't. You cannot keep your family safe. Trust the Lord. And that's true, right? We as Americans think that we can control our lives, that we can somehow keep our hearts beating, that we can somehow keep our investments growing, that we can somehow keep our family and loved ones safe, that we can somehow keep this happy, peaceful life that we thought we'd always have. But we actually don't have any control over that, do we? None. We can try to give ourselves the illusion that we have control over those things, but 
Here it is. When this royal official realized that he had zero control over his son's health, he came to Jesus. But the reality is, he had zero control over anything in his sphere of life before his son got sick. He just now came to realize it. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. The fact that our hearts don't all explode like every time it beats is unbelievable. Maybe the cardiologists in the room can help us understand that, but it's incredible. The fact that we like wake up every morning after like seven or eight hours of unconscious breathing, incredible. Like how does that happen? The fact that we aren't more often destroyed by asteroids, grace, grace, and only grace. We have no control over anything in the universe and in our lives. The minute this man had heard about what Jesus had done with the wine a couple weeks ago, he should have thought, overflowing wine, messianic kingdom, he's here. The one who can finally give meaning to, to my life. This life that I have no control over, he can, he's here. He's here to bring the forgiveness of my sins. He's here to heal me. He's here to transform me. He can give me a new heart. He can shape my desires. He can be my king. I'm going to go to him. But because he was under the illusion that he didn't need Jesus, that he had control over his own life, he just stayed where he was. He kept Jesus over here in the margins. He was content to be impressed by a party trick rather than submit his entire life to Christ. But it was God's severe mercy to bring and allow the sickness of this child. Because at the end of the story, Jesus didn't stay on the margins of this man's life, did he? While the man initially comes to Jesus merely for health and happiness, Jesus then sends him on his way, transformed. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. When he comes to Christ, the man had faith in the miracles. When he leaves, he has faith in the man, Jesus. He, along with his entire household, believed, perhaps even to the point that they would believe and trust without the signs. Perhaps they would even agree with Tim Keller, who says that we can be sure our prayers are answered precisely in the way that we would want them to be answered if we knew everything God knows. That at the coming of another sick child, that at the coming of a broken relationship or a lost job or a hungry belly, this man and this man's household, after hearing the testimony and seeing what happened to their son or their brother or their cousin, they would trust Jesus. They would love him with the entire range of the responses that Jesus might give. That knowing that he is good, that knowing that he is right, right, they might respond with, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In times of feast, in times of famine, in times of sickness, in time of health, you are right, you are good, I trust you. And we'll talk more about healing, faith, and even chronic suffering next week. But for now, I think this text asks us, confronts us, that are we willing to come to Christ in weakness? Are we willing to, in humility, admit to him that we have control over nothing? 
We certainly don't have control over our greatest need, that we have no ability to make ourselves right with God. We have no ability, no way to excuse or pardon a life of self-worship that we have all lived. Only Christ can do this. And then the glory of the gospel is that in sharing in his death for our sins, by our faith in him, we then actually get to share in his resurrection life as well. Christ's power now bursting forth and through our humble weakness. This is amazing. When we come to him in humility, when we come to him in weakness, the beauty of the gospel then is on the other side of that is great power, the power of Christ himself now living in us. I pray now that this week we'll get to spend some more time in this devotionally. We get to spend some more time in this in our GCs, talking through what this might look like, look, look like in our own lives. Don't let this be the only time that you spend some time this year in John chapter 4. Keep ruminating in it. Keep learning, growing, and being confronted by Christ himself. Let's go to him now in humility. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are all too eager to push you to the margins of our lives. We are all too quick to be bored by you, to lose interest in you, to be captivated by things other than you. Father, we pray that through your word, that through the encouragement of others by regularly being with one another, throughout the week and here on Sundays, that we might be confronted, corrected, and captivated by who Jesus is. Lord, might you make him the center of our universe, that he is the the glory that eclipses all other desire for sin, all other hope in things other than him. We pray that you might increase our vision of him. For his glory and for our own joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.